0: Chapter 19 of The Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Chapter 19 From the moment that Lawrence left me, vanishing into the heart of the snow and ice, I was obsessed by a conviction of approaching danger and peril. It has been one of the most disastrous weaknesses of my life, that I have always shrunk from precipitate action. Before the war, it had seemed to many of us that life could be jockeyed into decisions by words and theories and speculations. The swift and, as it were, revengeful precipitancy of the last three years had driven me into a self-distrust and cowardice, which had grown and grown until life had seemed veiled and distant and mysteriously obscure. From my own obscurity, against my will, against my courage, against my own knowledge of myself, circumstances were demanding that I should advance and act. It was of no avail to myself that I should act unwisely, that I should perhaps only precipitate a crisis that I could not help, I was forced to act when I would have given my soul to hold aloof, and in this town, whose darkness and light, intrigue and display, words and action, seemed to derive some mysterious force from the very soil, from the very air, the smallest action achieved monstrous proportions. When you have lived for some years in Russia, you do not wonder that its citizens prefer inaction to demonstration." The soil is so much stronger than the men who live upon it. Nevertheless, for a fortnight I did nothing. Private affairs of an especially tiresome kind filled my days. I saw neither Lawrence nor Vera, and during that period I scarcely left my rooms. There was much expectation in the town that February 14th, when the Duma was appointed to meet, would be a critical day, Fine things were said of the challenging speeches that would be made, of the firm stand that the cadet party intended to take, of the crisis with which the court party would be faced. Of course nothing occurred. It may be safely said that, in Russian affairs, no crisis occurs, either in the place or at the time, or in the manner in which it is expected. Time with us here refuses to be caught by the throat, That is the revenge that it takes on the scorn with which, in Russia, it is always covered. On the 20th of February I received an invitation to Nina's birthday party. She would be 18 on the 28th. She scribbled at the bottom of Vera's note, Dear Dirtles, if you don't come, I will never forgive you. Your loving Nina. The immediate problem was a present— i knew that nina adored presents but petrograd was now no easy place for purchases and i wished i suppose as a kind of tribute to her youth and freshness and color to give her something for which she would really care i sallied out on a wonderful afternoon when the town was a blaze of color the walls dark red dark brown violet pink and the snow a dazzling glitter of crystal the bells were ringing for some festival echoing as do no other bells in the world from wall to wall roof to roof canal to canal everybody moved as though they were inspired with a gay sense of adventure men and women laughing the isvostchiks surveying possible fairs with an eye less patronizing and lugubrious than usual the flower-women and the beggars and the little chinese boys and the wicked old men who stare at you as though they were dreaming of eastern debauches shared in the sun and tang of the air and high colour of the sky and snow i pushed my way into the shop in the morskaia that had the coloured stones the blue and azure and purple stones in the window inside the shop which had a fine gleaming floor and an old man with a tired eye there were stones of every colour but there was nothing there for nina all was too elaborate and grand near the nevsky is a fine shop of pictures with snow scenes and blue rivers and italian landscapes and copies of repin and Verestchegin and portraits of the czar I searched here, but all were too sophisticated in their bright brown frames, and their air of being the latest thing from Paris and London. Then I crossed the road, threading my way through the carriages and motor-cars, past the old white-bearded sweeper, with the broom held aloft, gazing at the sky, and plunged into the English shop to see whether I might buy something warm for Nina. Here, indeed, I could fancy that I was in the high street in Chester, or Leicester, or Truro, or Canterbury. A demure English provincialism was over everything, and a young man, in a high white collar and a shiny black coat, washed his hands as he told me that they hadn't any in stock at the moment, but they were expecting a delivery of goods at any minute. Russian shopmen, it is almost needless to say, do not care whether they have goods in stock or no. They have other things to think about. The air was filled with the chatter of English governesses, and an English clergyman and his wife were earnestly turning over a selection of woolen comforters. Nothing here for Nina, nothing at all. I hurried away. With a sudden flash of inspiration, I realized that it was in the Jews' market that I would find what I wanted. I snatched at the bulging neck of a sleeping coachman, and before he was fully awake was in his sledge, and had told him my destination. He grumbled, and wished to know how much I intended to pay him, and when I said one and a half roubles, answered that he would not take me for less than three i threatened him then with the fat and good-natured policeman who always guarded the confused junction of the morskaya and nevsky and he was frightened and moved on i sighed as i remembered the days not so long before when that same coachman would have thought it an honour to drive me for a half a rouble down the Sedovia we slipped bumping over the uneven surface of the snow, and the shops grew smaller, and the cinemas more stringent, and the women and men with their barrows of fruit and colored notepaper and toys more frequent. Then through the market with the booths and the church with its golden towers, until we stood before the hooded entrance to the Jew's paradise. I paid him, and without listening to his discontented cries pushed my way in. The Jews' market is a series of covered arcades, with a square in the middle of it, and in the middle of the square a little church with some doll-like trees. These arcades are western in their hideous covering of glass and the ugliness of the exterior of the wooden shops that line them, but the crowd that throngs them is eastern so that in the strange eyes and voices the wild gestures the laughs the cries the singing and the dancing that meets one here it is as though a new world was suddenly born a world offensive dirty voluble blackguardedly perhaps but intriguing tempting and ironical the arcades are generally so crowded that one can move only at a slow pace and on every side is pestered by the equivalents of the old english cry what do you lack what do you lack every mixture of blood and race that the world contains is to be seen here but they are all Tartars, Jews, Chinese, Japanese, Indians, Arabs, Muslim, and Christian, formed by some subtle color of atmosphere, so that they seem all alike to be citizens of some secret little town sprung to life just for a day in the heart of this other city. Perhaps it is the dull pale mist that the glass flings down. Perhaps it is the uncleanly dust-clogged air. Whatever it be, there is a stain of grey shadowy smoke upon all this world, and icons and shabby jewels and piles of eastern clothes and old brass pots and silver-hilted swords and golden-tasseled tartar coats gleam through the shadow and wink and stare. Today the arcades were so crowded that I could scarcely move, and the noise was deafening. Many soldiers were there, Looking with indulgent amusement upon the scene, and the Jews with their skull-caps, and the fat, huge-breasted Jewish women, screamed and shrieked, and waved their arms like boughs in a storm. I stopped at many shops, and fingered the cheap silver toys, the little blue and green icons, the buckles and beads and rosaries that thronged the trays, but I could not find anything for Nina. Then suddenly I saw a square box of of mother-of-pearl and silver, so charming and simple, the figures on the silver lid so gracefully carved, that I decided at once. The Jew in charge of it wanted twice as much as I was ready to give, and we argued for ten minutes before a kindly and appreciative crowd. At last we arranged a compromise, and I moved away, pleased and satisfied. I stepped out of the arcade and faced the little square. It was, at that instant, fantastic and oddly colored. The sun, about to set, hung in the misty sky a perfect round crimson globe, and it was perched, almost maliciously, just above the tower of the little church. The rest of the world was gray— The square was a thick mass of human beings so tightly wedged together that it seemed to move backwards and forwards like a floor of black wood pushed by a lever. One lamp burnt behind the window of the church. The old houses leaned forward as though listening to the babble below their eaves. But it was the sun that seemed to me then so evil and secret and cunning. Its deep red was aloof and menacing and its outline so sharp that it was detached from the sky, as though it were human, and would presently move and advance towards us. I don't know what there was in that crowd of struggling human beings, and that detached red sun. The air was cruel, and through all the arcades that seemed to run like veins to this heart of the place, i could feel the cold and the dark and the smoky dusk creeping forward to veil us all with deepest night i turned away and then saw advancing towards me as though he had just come from the church pushing his way and waving a friendly hand to me semyonov end of chapter nineteen